Greetings and welcome to an Odyssey into Oratory. I'm your host, Dan Ryman. I've always been fascinated with the Arthurian legends, the story of King Arthur, his Knights of the Round Table, Camelot, and all that that mythology includes. The debate whether the story is real or just a fairy tale has never been resolved. The current consensus, it's probably just Celtic mythology. Although we never know. It could have taken place in a parallel dimension. Physicists to this day have not reconciled the special theory of relativity and that of quantum mechanics. One shows how nature works at the macro level, the other shows how nature works at the subatomic level. One thing all physicists agree on is that the theories are incompatible in defining reality as we know it today, yet both are provable. How's that for a paradox? Currently, there are at least five interpretations put forth that reconcile these two theories. One of them is the many worlds theory. It suggests that there are nine physical dimensions of Earth and that all probabilities for a certain event take place in one dimension or the other. For example, if a young girl was torn between being a dancer or a school teacher when she grew up, she would be both, but in different dimensions. Sounds crazy, I know. Back to King Arthur. Maybe his story came from just next door. In fact, in the legend, you can only enter the Isle of Avalon by piercing a veil on the high seas into another dimension. Avalon, of course, is where King Arthur would go to heal from his battle wounds and be nurtured by the enchantress Morgana Le Fay. Another key character in the Arthurian legend is Merlin, the wizard, and he claimed that words can cast spells. Spell, of course, is the root for spelling. Merlin was not the only one. Virtually all medieval cultures taught that words have a magical power. They did, and they still do. So powerful words can be, we still use taboo deformations in our language today. Gosh darn it and dag dabbit would be good examples. For centuries, cultures used pseudonames for bears and wolves for fear if they uttered their real name, the wolf or bear would appear. Count Dracula never referred to wolves by their native name. He used the euphemism, children of the night. Wolf and bear in those days were curse words. I remember reading an experiment years ago. In this experiment, two different groups were shown a video of a car crash. After viewing the video, one group was asked if they had seen the broken light. The other group was asked if they had seen a broken light. The group that was asked the and not a was three times more likely to have seen the broken headlight. Think about that. For the next time proper grammar gives you a choice between using one of those two articles that precede a noun. Oh, and by the way, there was no broken headlight in the video. Words do indeed have power. On a sunnier side, think about what else we can do with words. We have the power to create sublime thoughts, ecstatic feelings, and soaring imagery in the minds of other people with our words. Yes, we can spell our words into existence. Okay, now that we've taken that flight of fancy, it's time for some meat and potatoes. In my last podcast, I talked about something called speech mechanics. I use this term to refer to anything regarding a speech that is not the content of the speech itself. This would include gestures, voice, variety, tone, pitch, pace, appearance, facial expressions, 
and other concepts we'll be discussing later in this podcast series. Today, I'm going to talk about just two specific topics that would fall under the rubric of speech mechanics. First, let me address the Moribian model. In the speaker's training world, it is known as 73855. The model was developed by Albert Moravian, a former professor of psychology at UCLA. He combined two of his experiments on how people are influenced by speech. The results showed 7% were influenced by the spoken word, 38% by the tone of the voice, and a whopping 55% by body language. This is still widely taught in speech training today and universally accepted as true and accurate. It's not. Imagine hearing a speech given in Pig Latin while the speaker is flailing his arms and catching their face. Not a chance the audience would understand 93% of the speaker's message. Another example, a person giving a lecture on how to sequence the DNA of an Alaskan Malamute. His or her words would be a hell of a lot more important than just 7%. Marubian's experiment was dealing with feelings, emotion, and attitudes when there was an incongruency among the three components of the model. Example, I said, I'm really happy today. Of course, the actual words would be almost meaningless given my tone and convoluted face. In fairness to Professor Marubian, he is on record claiming that his model was and is widely misunderstood. But in my mind, what is particularly useful about his model is that he separates speech into three essential components, which make crafting, dissecting, and improving a speech a much easier task than it otherwise would have been. Another interesting aspect of the experiment is that it confirms something we all know intuitively. If your words and body language are in conflict, people will overwhelmingly select your body language to be more truthful. Think about the famous debate between Nixon and Kennedy in the 1960 presidential election, a time when people were equally getting their news between radio and television. People that listened to the debate on radio thought Nixon won the debate. People that watched the debate on television thought that Kennedy won the debate. For the skilled speaker, these three components will have a much closer distribution than 7, 38, and 55 suggests. Unless a speaker is extraordinarily gifted in one aspect of their presentation, how a particular audience member is influenced by that speech will say more about that individual's preferred senses for processing incoming information than it will about the speaker's output. Each of us favors one or two senses over the others. Therefore, a speaker should always aim to engage all five senses in any given talk. This is an extremely important concept and I will discuss it more in future podcasts. Okay, on to our second topic for the day. I'm going to play a video recording. It's about two minutes. You know, I think really um, this is sort of a unique moment both in our, you know, in our country's history and, and in, in, you know, in my own life. And, um, you know, we are facing, you know, unbelievable uh, challenges, our economy, you know, health care, 
uh, people are losing their jobs here in New York, obviously. Um, uh, particularly, you know, families are hurting, education is tough. Um, and so, um, you know, and for me, I've grown up here, I've lived here all my life, I love New York. And, um, you know, and, and going into politics is something that people have asked me about forever. Even when I first just thought it in my own mind, you know, I got, you know, people come up to me on the street, on the subway, just this morning, walking over here on the subway. And, um, you know, they're like, you know, go for it, you know, we're rooting for you. Somebody dropped off 200 signs at my husband's office two weeks ago. Um, and so, you know, I thought, well, okay, I really ought to take this seriously. This is really an incredible opportunity. And, um, and you know, there are issues that I really care about that are going to come up now. I, I come into this thinking I'd have to work twice as hard as anybody else. And this is, nobody's entitled to anything. It's certainly not, certainly not me. And um, there are many qualified people in this. And so, um, you know, I, I am an unconventional choice. I, I understand that. I haven't pursued the traditional path. But I think that um, in our public life today, you know, we're starting to see that there are many ways into to public life and public service, and it's not um, as, you know, all our institutions are less um, hierarchical than they used to be. And so, you know, I think that, you know, I bring, you know, my life experience to this, and, you know, that includes, um, you know, being a mother, um, you know, I understand sort of those choices that women make. It includes, you know, being a lawyer, I've written seven best-selling books, you know, two on the Constitution, um, you know, anthologies about American history and values, political courage, you know, and I've really tried to encourage people to go into public service. What did you hear? In those two minutes, I counted a combined total of 30 ums and and ums, and 22 you knows. In this context, I call you know an injected non sequitur. Other notable non-sequiturs would be like, I mean, okay, and in the past decade, a particularly funny non-sequitur became a virus that entered our lexicon, and stuff like that. After speaking a series of nouns, people would often end the sentence with, and stuff like that. I once worked for a company where the president caught that virus. His speeches were riddled with it. We need to increase sales by 5%, and stuff like that. Say what? Many people have their own idiosyncratic non-sequiturs. I worked with another exceptionally talented marketing executive who punctuated almost every sentence with the numerous speeches he gave with and that. Many current speech coaches and trainers advise their clients not to pay too much attention to this topic. They claim audiences are influenced by a speaker's passion, enthusiasm, and authenticity. That is bad advice, and I disagree emphatically. Audiences will be precluded from receiving the full measure of a speaker's passion, enthusiasm, and authenticity when the superfluous noise of non-words and non-sequiturs drown out or diminish the potency of their message. It is not an either-or. Speakers need both clean speech and authenticity. Remember, words can be mighty potent they can cast spells, but only if they are free of debris. A brief aside here, while we're on the topic of words, a speaker should strive to use more words derivative of the Anglo-Saxon language and less of the Latin language. 
More on that in future podcasts. Another devastating aspect regarding non-words and non-sequiturs is that they leave no room for the pause. There is a Zen koan that reads, It's the space between the bar that holds the tiger. I believe it is the pause between the words that makes the speech. In the recording you just listened to, the person was from a prominent political family and was considering a run for the U.S. Senate. Her speech pattern belied her considerable talent, intellect, and accomplishments. After several interviews like the one you just heard, she abandoned her run for the U.S. Senate. Politicians, who are almost all universally trained in speech, undoubtedly knew why. But a person untrained in speech would only get the vague impression she just wasn't very polished, without putting their finger on the specific reasons. Believe it or not, for people with these imperfections, there is a simple fix. Not easy, but simple. It starts with awareness. If someone wants to discover their own imperfections and ultimately correct them, I suggest they get either an app on their phone or just a plain old tape recorder. By recording themselves every chance they get while dining with others, on the phone, meetings at work, this can be accomplished in complete privacy. And once a person discovers their imperfections, ahs, ums, other non-words, non-sequiturs, they will start to become hyper-aware the moment they utter them. Once these imperfections are brought to conscious awareness, a person will automatically begin eliminating them from their vocabulary. For a short time, their speech may be halting and the pacing off, but if they stay with it for three or four weeks, their imperfections will start disappearing. Warning. If one succeeds at this exercise forevermore, they will be acutely aware of the imperfections in the vocabulary of those whom they routinely interact with, and it might drive them crazy for some period. Just as we separate the wheat from the chaff, we need to remove the dross from our words so that their capability of casting spells is not diminished. With that, today's voyage has ended. This is Dan Riley taking you on an odyssey into oratory. Until next time, throw off those bow lines. We're on the move now.